Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the You Can Do It Too podcast by Mamba Inspire. I am Mamadou Balde. I'm your host. The purpose of this podcast is to both showcase black excellence and increase awareness of the multitude of career possibilities out there for up-and-coming black professionals. This podcast will assist in breaking stigmas, barriers, and helping black students believe that they are smart enough to be future doctors, engineers, educators, and entrepreneurs. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Hutchinson. That's right? me, yep. Yes, sir. You go by Doc Hutch. I do, yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It's my pleasure. I know you are really busy as a physician. and So, let's jump right into it. First mm-hmm. of all, where are you from? Where, where are you originally from? So, I was born in Los Angeles, California. Yes, sir. Grew up in central L.A., and then about the age of 10, we moved to West L.A. Okay. Um, so L.A. is where I consider born and raised. But being in the military, the question of where you're from is always a tricky one. Yeah. Because now I've probably spent more time in Texas and Germany and Maryland than I have in California. Wow. What was like growing up? In LA in the 1970s, right? Yeah, that's because I was born in 67, so you can calculate yeah. how old. <laughs> <laughs> Especially as a young a young black man, how, how hard? Yeah. What, what was life like? So, so for me, I'm, I I have special circumstances. My dad was LAPD, so for me in the 60s, I didn't find out till much later that he joined the police force because he looked around and saw there weren't very many black people in the LAPD, yes, and he sir. wanted to make a difference. You know, he didn't share that with me till a lot later. But growing up for me, having a dad who's a police officer, I think I was protected. I also had an older brother who you know, was a big guy, and I think he would also protect me too. And I went to Catholic school. Uh, black Catholic schools are not very common in LA, in Maryland, Baltimore. You may find some black Catholic schools, but that was my initial environment. So I would say growing up, I was pretty protected. I was someone who just was able to do what I need to do, go to school, play in my neighborhood, and come home. All those stories about boys in the hood and, and things like that, they were happening around me. Mm-hmm. I, I walked home by a school that was probably one of the first places where Crips started to be formed. Wow. But it didn't mess with me. No, because I didn't go to the school and I wasn't hanging out at this school. I mean, I heard about it, but it just, it wasn't, it was, it was almost like a a walled off area for me. Wow. Even that route coming from school. Even, you know, even walking by it. Because, you know, even though the fears were that there was a lot of crime and and black on black violence, that's not the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, people fight with people that they know. People fight with people who, means something to them and if i'm just a, a black kid walking by they're not going to mess with me yes sir so how, they, how far from uh, compton or inglewood is la so so la county is huge mm-hmm. compton is part of it it's called south central yes, and i was central so it was maybe you know f- five miles away oh, wow. 
But but again, if I'm not walking through that neighborhood, if I'm not living in that neighborhood, it, it wasn't the same for me, yeah. Yes, sir. So at home, you had that great support. Yeah. But was education a privilege or an expectation? Were you expected to uh, like... So neither of yeah. my parents graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Um, expectation was to go to school. I don't know if my parents said, you are going to go all the way through college, because my dad jokes about just barely making it through high school. Yes, not because he's not smart, just because he didn't care. Yes, you know, And he joined the Marines right after. I think because of his service in the Marines, his service on the police force, I thought the military was not really an expectation, but part of what I would do in the future. Oh, wow. Um, Did he tell you that, or it's uh, just something that you tell? Just something, because you, you watch, right? You mm-hmm. see what your parents do. Exactly. You see your role models, and you think, that makes sense for me, too. So, so college, I think it was an unspoken expectation, but when you have parents that didn't do it, it's not like they can say, I did it, so you have to do it. Exactly. So today, um, many people believe in, in inner cities, mm-hmm. right? Uh, young African-American believe that the way out is to entertainment or football or yeah. sports, right? Yep. So was the military for you a way out then? No, because I was privileged enough that my mom worked and she decided all of her money would go for my education. So it's private schools. Yes, sir. And in LA, unfortunately, there was a big difference between public and private schools. Yes, sir. So being in a private school, I was already given a leg up. Okay. I was going to, I had the advantages I needed to succeed. Yes, sir. Knew I wanted to be a, actually I wanted to be a veterinarian first before I wanted to be a doctor. (laughs) Um, But I knew early on that I was going to do whatever I wanted to do. Yes, sir. And having supportive parents that said, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do, made a big difference. Yes, sir. So you graduated high school in the 1980, right? Five, uh-huh. 85. You graduated school in 1985, and you decided to go to uh, Washington, the Army. So West Point's in New York. West Point. Oh, New York. Yep. West Point. West Point. And I didn't know anything about West Point. I thought it was just a bunch of Army people playing a bunch of Navy yeah. people. How much did you have to sacrifice, like, to, how much did you have to sacrifice to go there, to go in that uncertain world? Uh, so I knew I wanted to run away from home to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> so having a, the, the disadvantage of having a, a dad who's LAPD yes, is there's discipline at home, uh-huh. right? There's not the same freedom. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was doing well enough in school where I figured if I went to school, that's my way of kind of getting out of the house. Mm-hmm. My final decision came down between Harvard and West Point, and I decided that if I went to Harvard, I'd be challenged academically, mm-hmm. maybe physically, because there was a, a probability I would have played football. Um, but West Point, I would have been challenged both academically, physically, and I would have been able to do leadership too. Mm-hmm. So money made a big difference. Wow. And West Point is a full scholarship in return you pay back five years of service so I chose West Point what did I have to give up I I joke with people that Catholic school gave me all the discipline I needed I didn't didn't need any more so I gave up some freedom Mm -hmm. but it wasn't I don't consider it a big sacrifice so you didn't feel a hard time waking up that oh it was there were were hard times yeah first especially first year first year is like a whole year of hazing Mm -hmm. so if you join a fraternity or sorority the hell week mm-hmm. is a hell year at wow. the academies. It's changed some now, mm-hmm. but still, it's 
there's definite lack of freedom. Wow. So in my little life, one thing I, I, I learned is that struggle is the best way to learn. Yeah. Right. What are some struggles you have to face and made you a better man in West Point? At West Point in particular? At West Point, yeah. So the, the first year of West Point, again, was a, a lack of freedom. You were told where to go, what to do. And for me, being yelled at for stupid stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> being told what to do, that whether it made sense or not, that was a little bit of a struggle. Yes, sir. It, it was the idea that I'm, I was old enough to be an adult electrical, electrical engineering, engineering, and it kicked my butt. I almost didn't pass. And I'm here to tell you that even someone who got a D in undergrad can still be a doctor. But every interview I had, they asked me about that too. <laughs> yeah, <sir. laughs> and, and the advice I give people all the time is when those interview questions come, you know, why did you do this or why didn't you do as well? Interviewers are looking to see, are you going to blame somebody else or are you going to take responsibility? Yes, didn't know it at the time, but I, I always took responsibility. Definitely. And so my answer was, I made a bad choice. I didn't have, I didn't spend enough time studying and learning what I was supposed to. And I think that spoke to my interviewers to say, okay, he is, he, he learned from yeah. the lesson. Yes, sir. Many people do not understand that the people who are successful today were not successful all the time. Nope. nope. The most successful people are people who are willing to go to fail and then be willing to rise from that hole right. and shine again. Right. Because we all fail. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So after, after West Point, mm -hmm. You decided to go to medical school. Talking about academics, yes. yes, you took that electrical engineering class, which was hard. Yep. But then medical school, yes. that means you did well in West Point to right. be prepared for medical school. So you went to medical school at the University of California, San Francisco. Correct. What were the biggest hardships like coming in uh, in medical school? So, so medical school, West Point prepared me for the work of medical school. Yeah. It didn't prepare Discipline. me, yes, it yes, didn't, didn't prepare me academically. So my classes at West Point were small, especially my science classes, you know, nine to 15 people. So it was very easy to ask your professor for help to understand what they wanted to teach you to spend that time you needed to. The hardest thing at West Point, and I failed my first test there, mm -hmm. and that was a, a big blow that I need to do something different. Yes, sir. Medical school expects you to do a lot of independent learning. So the lectures may or may not be what's on the test. Yeah. And I didn't know that. And I didn't have enough experience to talk to anyone else to say, how are you studying? What else needs to be done? So I learned with that first test that you know, whatever I was doing wasn't right. And I asked for help and I changed what I was doing. And fortunately, the rest, that was the only test that I failed. Wow. Yeah, I still wasn't at the top of the class, wasn't at the bottom, I was in the middle. Mm -hmm. And the advantage of going to a school like San Francisco is it's a great school. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to prove to the rest of the world by being number one in the class mm -hmm. that, that I could be a good doctor. And we had a pass-fail honor system, mm -hmm. which I, I can't s stress enough how much pressure that took off of me. Yeah. It, it gave me the permission to do my best to learn without worrying about where am I in the class ranking. Now, if I wanted to be an, an orthopedist, a dermatologist, then it didn't matter. I would have had to work a lot harder, but I knew early on 
pediatrics and primary care is what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I was in med school to learn medicine. Yes, sir. And my classmates, they would, they would be surprised at how little stress I seemed to be under during medical school because they didn't understand what I went through at West Point. Yes, already. sir. Yes, sir. That's the thing. I feel like that's the difference right there. No matter what high school teaches us, give us what we need to know. You learn it and then you take the test. Yep. Same thing. You come to college, people don't know it's not about how smart you are. It's about how hard you're willing to work and how hard you're willing to rise right. when you fell down. Yep. And many smart people come to college. Right now, this is happening. I spoke to one of the advisors in engineering and she was telling me this, that there are so many students who were so smart in high school come to her office saying that they failed their first test and they want to take a semester off. Right. Because they never failed before. They were always smart. Yep. That's amazing. So at the University of California in San Francisco Medical School, mm -hmm. I'm sure during that time in the 1990s, right? Right. There were uh, very few people that looked like you, very few black men. So, so there was a study out just in 2015 mm -hmm. talking about the lack of black men in medicine. Wow. That the number in medical school in 2015 was less than the number in 1978. Wow. So there have been 30 years of no improvement in the number of black men in medicine. Wow. So I, of course, you know, that speaks to me personally. And I, I looked at the numbers and in the 90s and late 80s when I went in, there was a little bump. There was a, a, a big push. And my class, I was fortunate out of 150, 140 people in my class, there were 12 of us, uh, 12 black students. Wow. So San Francisco was already ahead of the curve trying to say that we need everybody, we need the diversity. Yes, sir. Um, so no, I didn't have very many professors, I didn't have very many role models. Um, San Francisco at the time, that was at the height of the AIDS epidemic, so race was not as big of, was not the urgent issue. It was sexuality and this disease that was killing people. Wow. So, our focus, while we did talk about race some, it was really much more on what are we gonna do for all these people who are dying, dying. from this disease. Wow. Wow, you, I, many people don't think about that. I, I did not think about that. Wow, did you deal with any imposter syndrome or intimidation uh, you, in those classes? You still do. Like, <laughs> imposter syndrome, I don't think ever stops until you are in an environment where everybody's like you or where you're part of the majority. Wow. So. The further you go up in academic, uh, political, economic success, and the fewer people who look like you, that voice in your head is always going to be there. Do you really belong? How do you fight it? So you, you can't turn that voice off. Yeah. There's no way to turn it off. You make the other voices louder. Mm. Whether you keep a journal that reminds you of the things that you've accomplished, whether you surround yourself by people who remind you that you're part of a group that's succeeding, uh, all those things help you get through those days. Uh, it, it's not easy, but it's something that affects some people more than others. Yes, sir. Now, I, I always, not always, I like to talk about how immigrants, so Africans, first generation, they often came from a very successful place. They mm -hmm. have great role models. That imposter syndrome, in my opinion, is not often there in the beginning. But then, here in America, you start to get surrounded by people who are saying, 
are you sure you belong? Where are you really from? And all those other questions. And that starts to bubble up. Yes, sir. So having that strong support network, that strong family, that reminder of what you've already done helps you get through it. Wow. And, and I also like to add that one of the, the problems with a lot of minority groups is that we think that we have accomplished so much and we have to do more on our own. The Asian groups have it right. They know that if you work together, you're more likely to succeed. So they are often less hesitant to ask for help. And we have to learn that too. We have to say, as soon as you fail that first test, help. Not, sure. let me take a break, but what people can I surround myself with that are gonna help me make it to where I need to be. Definitely. Wow. So in resident, residency is one of the best, uh, the most meaningful year in the physician development. Exactly. Right. Uh, you chose pediatri pediatrics, uh -huh. right? What were the biggest challenges you faced in residency? Uh, so I get to go to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Somebody had to go, so I chose <laughs> Hawaii. No, and it, it was fantastic. There were six of us who started my residency class. Mm -hmm. The way the military works, it's not always... Um, it's a little complicated. Mm -hmm. So one person was in the Navy and the Navy did residency different. So he only did the first year with us and left. Wow. One other person, he decided that pediatrics was not best for him and he moved to family medicine. So there were four of us left doing the job of six people for residency. So we had to divide the work of wow. six people. That was the hardest part. You had to put in more time and there weren't any work hour restrictions back when I did it either. Wow. So it was easily 120 hour work weeks um, learning what you needed to do. Now, the benefit of that is I got more experience than many other people. Mm -hmm. You know, my first assignment out after residency was in Germany and I had to transport neonates in a helicopter, you know. Which pediatricians right out of residency would have had enough experience to say, yes, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I was able to get all those experiences. Students now, residents now, struggle to get enough intubations and the procedures they need to do. That was not an issue. I had all the procedures I needed to do everything I needed to do. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So you say you had to do five years after residency, right? For, right. for medical... To, uh, to, to pay serve. back West yeah, Point. To serve mm -hmm. for you. Well, when did you do that? Is it after residency or after your fellowship? Right. So after residency, as long as you're being trained, your payback doesn't count. Okay. So it, it counted towards my retirement, but it didn't count towards the money that the Army put into me for West Point. Mm -hmm. So three years of pediatric residency, first assignment in Germany. As soon as I got to Germany, that's when my payback started. So I did three years in Germany, but then most assignments are like three, two to three years. My next assignment was back in Hawaii as what we called a brigade surgeon. So I took care of troops, yes, not of children anymore. Okay. And after two years of that, my payback time was officially done. But I wanted to do more training. So I applied for a fellowship in adolescent medicine, taking care of teenagers, anywhere from 11 to 25 year olds. By being accepted into that program, my clock stopped. and. I did those three years of training, and then I owed three more years after that. Uh -huh. And that was in uh, Maryland at Walter Reed, Okay. and did those three years there. And then 
Uh, the rest was by the time my training and commitment was done, I had 15 years of mm. service and it would have been silly not to keep going to get my complete uh, retirement. Wow, wow. What's the best, uh, what's the best thing about a being a doctor uh, in, in the army in when the you're serving? Because mm -hmm. many doctors right now who work in hospitals are kind of restricted by rules and stuff. Yeah. What's the best thing about the freedom to, <laughs> well, to serve? Well, there's still the same rules. <laughs> <laughs> Military doctors face the same um, rules and restrictions that everyone else does. Mm -hmm. But the thing that we don't have to worry about is insurance. Mm -hmm. Military is universal health care. Anybody who serves in their family gets treated without any out-of-pocket expenses. Mm -hmm. So the ability to take care of the person that you see in front of you, the best way that you think they need to be treated, you can't beat that. So that that's fantastic. And then the camaraderie. To be able to call a specialist and say, I have a patient who I think has this problem, you can be sure that they're not going to operate because they need to make their quota or because they want to make more money or get procedures. Mm -hmm. They'll operate because they think that's what's the best thing that needs to happen. Yes, so that, I, I miss that in the military. What was the most traumatic event you... Uh, that I went through? Yeah. So I was in Iraq during the surge mm -hmm. from 2006 to 2007. Wow. And during that time you ask, how do they use a pediatrician in combat? We are used as the first line after the medics stabilize them. So they'll bring them to us. I would put in chest tubes, intubate, put IVs in, all the things to stabilize them before they're sent to the hospital for surgery if they need it. The most traumatic event, unfortunately, had to do with um, Iraqi family. We had bases and there were rules about who could approach and what would happen at those bases. There was a, a sedan, a car that approached the gate. The guard signaled for them to stop. They didn't stop, but they accelerated. Mm -hmm. And the, the rules were that if someone approaches the gate, the guards need to fire on them to stop. So they fired into the vehicle, killed the grandmother with her grand, three-year-old granddaughter on her lap um, in the back seat. And it was traumatic because I was the physician they called to come examine and treat and do the uh, death pronunciation. And it's just something that will, will never leave me. I mean, there, there was, the only fault was the person driving because they didn't take, they probably panicked and mm -hmm. drove instead of stopping. Um, but knowing the trauma to that family, the trauma to the guard who knows he killed a, a child and a grandmother, all that stuff is just something that's that's will always be with me. Yes, sir. So I have a special rigor to our uh, traumatic uh, training. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the best doctors, who are doctors who are willing to who who can who have the ability to respond mm. in trauma. Yeah. Right. Do you, and I feel like every doctor should have that experience. Uh, I don't know exactly because I'm not a doctor, but in my mind, I feel like so many doctors who go to medical school here do not have that experience. They can, they will freeze if there is a big traumatic event. So that is, that's true because you, we have like three responses mm -hmm. to stress, right? Um, fight, flight, or freeze. Yes, I think though that most doctors will fight. Most doctors 
because they've been in situations and we get trained regularly to yeah. how do you respond, how do you do something, most of us end up doing something. But you're right, code situations, which may not be trauma, but you have a patient whose heart stops and you have to react. The first thing we tell trainees is take your own pulse, you know, calm down, realize that if, if you're no good to the patient, they're not gonna improve. So you have to take a breath and decide, well, what's the first thing I need to do? Training makes a huge difference in your ability to respond. And the exposure to trauma, all trauma is different. You know, from a, a gunshot to the hand, to a loss of a limb, to an abdominal wound, you can never predict how you're gonna respond until you're actually in that situation. And we try to do those mind games of, well, what would I do? What can I imagine? They help some, but it's that experience. Mm -hmm. It's those 120 hours a week in, in yes, the hospital sir. that remind you that I can respond if I need to. Yes, sir. So as a physician today, uh, this past year since you've been a physician, mm -hmm. did you have to prove yourself to your colleague? How hard mm -hmm. is it for you to prove to your colleague that that I belong. That you belong. Um, Not I, that you need to. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think the, the proof always comes whenever you're in a new situation. Yes, sir. Right? It is different for some people depending on how they look. You know, there's a huge issue now with women being not assumed to be either the doctor or especially surgical uh, and being assumed that they're the nurse or that they're not the surgeon. They face a lot more than me. As a, as a black man, during residency and my first few years when I looked younger, I was always assumed to be the respiratory mm -hmm. therapist, not the doctor. Wow. It was not something I had to prove once they realized the mistake they made and that I was a doctor. Mm -hmm. And then also being in the military, wearing a uniform and my rank showing, that was automatic proof of me belonging. Yes, so. It was easier for me than I think for a lot of my colleagues. Yes, sir. But what I was saying about being in a new situation, as soon as you show up somewhere, people are looking at you to evaluate you, to judge you, mm -hmm. and they're gonna look at how you respond. So you're proving yourself every time you meet new people. Yeah, and I remember when I, when I left Guinea at the age of 12, one thing my father told me, told me the same thing. Uh, when you get in a new place, people are gonna wonder who you are. Yep. And the best way is to focus on what you're doing and uh, do your best. How do you make sure that people don't see you as arrogant? Ah, ah. So first, that's great advice from your dad. I completely agree. You mm -hmm. have to focus on what you're doing. Arrogance comes from, um, from inadequate skills. Mm -hmm. So someone, <laughs> someone who says, I can do this, and then they can't, mm -hmm. they're arrogant. Yes, sir. Um, humility and being humble can go a long way. Yes, sir. So there's a difference between bragging about what you can do and then someone asking, can you do this? And you honestly saying, yes, I can do that. So how do you not come across as arrogant? Listen, if someone gives you correction or advice or even wants to tell you something, be able to say, I hear what you say, even repeat back to them. So what you're telling me is this and you just take it in. Yes, sir. You, don't, you don't try to argue that you're wrong, you don't know me, you don't know what I can do. You let your actions speak, speak louder than your words. Yes, sir. So one thing you are passionate about, uh, 
your presentation first shooter yeah uh, you saw that yeah <laughs> <laughs> so many people have this amount uh, when they see a, somebody in the military as a doctor the first thing you are in the military right. or you, you sometimes you have to kill people yeah but also as a pediatrician yeah. you want to help your children how do you fight that yeah so I, I i tell people that my career has been a, a, a dichotomy a, a contrast mm -hmm. i'm in a profession that's designed to to have force and render harm and kill mm -hmm. people in the military but i'm also a physician whose role is to heal people so i've been very very fortunate that i've never had to do the force part of my career I've never had to um, use my weapon against someone else. I learned how to shoot. I did all those things to defend myself and my patients, but yes, I was never in a situation where I had to, which is great. How do I, how do I reconcile it? I take care of people. That's my number one job. Yes, sir. And whether it's one of my troops, whether it's an enemy combatant, whether it's a civilian casualty, my role is to help whoever I can help. Um, so I've never had to face that that situation where I had to take a life. Yes, sir. So many young black male uh, of and female mm -hmm. at the moment. If you ask them, I had a lot of conversation where people say I can't do that. They say, "Mama, do what major are you?" I'm chemical engineering. They say, "Oh, that's too hard. I can't mm -hmm. do that." Many people look like society have instilled in their head that. Medicine is not for them. Yeah. Engineering is not for them. Mm -hmm. Not that all the other things are bad, but why? How do you think we should do to get those people believing that they can't be whoever they want? The yeah. Options are limitless. So you hear all the time, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. But the truth is, there's a lot of things you'll never see. Mm -hmm. But you can still try to be it. It's the exposure, though. So we in the black community want to bring up other black people and that's important, mm -hmm. but we're limited. There are only so many of us. So we need non-black people to also mentor, to bring in, to be part of the solution of yes. telling people, of course you can do it. Yes, sir. You know, here's, here's a start. This is how I started and come follow me for a day. Come see what I do. I know someone else you can talk with. You can find a mentor, an example, someone who lifts you up yes, in so many different places. Yes, sir. So a big another big misconception is that physicians are too busy and mm -hmm. do not have time to do anything else. Yeah. But today you are also a CEO for uh, Wade Alliance. Yes. Right? How did you find time to do, both. do what you care, to do what you're passionate about, helping people, yeah. but also uh, doing something that you building your own legacy. Yeah. Like so I, I made the conscious decision that I would make time for both. Yes, sir. The last four years, I was a chief diversity officer. I was taking, I was helping people get into medical school and trying to make the school more diverse and inclusive. And I just couldn't let that go. That was really important to me. Yes, sir. So having a military pension is an amount of freedom. So I know that I won't be homeless. I know that I'll always have an income coming in. That allows me to pursue this other part of my career. So I'm able to work as a doctor 16 hours a week. I can do it part time. And with that 16 hours, I have the rest of the week to do what I want to do to build my legacy. Yes, sir. So financial freedom, money is a tool. 
I have the financial freedom to pursue what's important to me. Wow. Yeah. There you have it. Thank you so much for giving us your time. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mamba Inspire You Can Do It Too podcast. We have another special guest next episode. Make sure you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date. Our YouTube channel, we have a Twitter and Instagram for updates. Look up Mamba Inspire. Peace.